Keisha Bottoms so. tells me everything I need to know. Did I tell you this? That if Joe Biden picked her for vice president, they, well, but if he anymore. did, the posters would say Biden Bottoms. <laughs> <laughs> That's you know so true. <laughs> Biden Bottoms 2020. Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. Hello. Hi, everybody. Hey. hey. I want you both to look into the camera. No one has mentioned uh, my haircut. Oh, there's a haircut? Wow. <laughs> First of all, I went to go to the barber. We had to go upstairs because everyone has to be spread out. There's plastic sheets hanging from... It looks like a kill room from Dexter. There's just plastic sheets hanging from the ceiling. I sit down. I've got to hold the mask over my face while he's doing all this stuff. And at the end, when he took off like the barber's cape, whatever it's called, off of me, <laughs> I was like a formerly nerdy white girl in an 80s movie, like going to prom. I was like, I'm beautiful. Like, look at this. I forgot what I look like. My hair was growing in all weird tufts. Jason, Aww. we all just don't shave our heads bald. You know what I mean? Like well, some of us. I had not had anyone touch my my head or my facial hair in years. And then the day before I got married, I decided to go to the barber. I was not happy with the the outcome. However, I really just enjoyed the process. And so I decided, I think I want to go to a barber. So I found a different barber that I went to a week ago and I I was very happy. So I don't know. I'm I'm kind of like I'm so used to not spending money on a barber, but now I'm I might be a little addicted. Can I tell you something? This is related. I mean, I don't know if this is the same for white people, but like black shops are a particular kind of ecosystem. Mm -hmm. It's extremely toxically masculine. And it's just really, it's difficult space. When I picked my barber, I specifically went to East Harlem and walked into the first place I saw with a bunch of Latinos who did not speak English, just because <laughs> I, I, right? Just because like to have to sit through a conversation where people are talking about women in a certain way or talking about women's body parts, like in a really degrading way, like it sickens me. So I was like, you know what? I don't understand what the fuck anyone's saying. This works out great for me. So any barber stories you want to share, Trisha? No. <laughs> barber stories. No barber stories. No. Still rocking the blonde locks, by the way. They look great. Yeah. Thank you. I did suddenly look at them. I was like, I'm over it. So I'm going to be changing it this weekend. Wow. Every time I'm like, it looks like you just got them I done. Know, right? Great. It's because there's a bit of a glow about me. Yeah. No. There's, there's always a glow about you, but now there's a blonde glow. It's... <laughs> Bless. Oh boy! Remember when you had natural hair? Mm-hmm. Remember? You remember when the guy came up to me on the bus on the yes. bus and said, "Be real." <laughs> and then you, yes. What did you have? You had like a weave? No, you had braids or something. I just had braids. You had braids, and he's well, like, like, "Be real." Now. This was this was like twenty five years ago. He was like, "Be real, sister. Be real." And then she did. Then then you, <laughs> you had like real then hair I, for then like I went four on years. A natural hair journey, and then it yeah. took me like ninety minutes of my my week sometimes. <laughs> To take you, care of my hair. Twist do you it. remember when you, when we lived together in New York? We would 
and I had long hair at the time, and we'd sit on the couch and watch two hours of Law and Order SVU, and the whole time we're doing our hair, like the whole time. It took two hours a night, two hours a night to set our hair for the next day. What? Think about the what could we have accomplished in that time? Could have written something. We accomplished a lot. We watched some Law and Order. <laughs> we watched. I judge it not. <laughs> I mean, you can imagine, right? Abby and her two daughters. It's a day and a half. I'm not exaggerating. When even... it's time to do hair, it's a day and a half. It's a lot. Do you do your daughter's hair? You know, I I used to, but I don't have to anymore. She her hair's locked, and so oh. she goes to a loctician, you know, every several weeks, and it's very low maintenance. Other than that, wild. That's beautiful, though. Yeah, that is. Beautiful. I like locks. She, I mean, she gets a lot of compliments. It's very interesting, right? I mean, she's very light skinned, as you know, mm-hmm. and she's got locked hair. And I mean, everywhere we go, people are just fawning over her. Just, oh my God, her hair's so beautiful. Men, women, just like. Yeah, our hair's really like that. <laughs> and there you have it. <laughs> there you have it. I like that statement. Yeah, our hair's like that. Amazing. I <laughs> know. Oh, <laughs> really quickly, uh, just checking in. Uh, anyone do anything for Fourth of July? You know what? I took the Monday off, and let me tell you something about taking days off during a pandemic. You know what it really means? Just don't respond to emails. That's it. That's yeah, all. you're doing the same shit you were doing normally. Just you're right. not looking at, yeah. you're doing it in front of a screen. Yeah. I know. I was like, I don't really like this vacation day. What am I supposed to do? So then I was like, well, maybe I'll just go into the pool so that suggests that I'm doing something different. Okay. I get that logic. I get that logic. Right? I can't go anywhere, but there's a pool here. It's horrible. Good I hate Vacation during a pandemic sucks. I never yeah. thought about that. When you're working full time at home and you're like, and you're like, oh, I just can't go to work today. What the? What? <laughs> no, the, I took a week. What's the I took, I took the week off after I got married, and really all it was is I stood in my front yard with the dog and my kids and just like stood there. It was wonderful <laughs> though. Terrifying. I enjoyed it, but we were just <laughs> we're just standing out there with the dog. I, I enjoyed it though. <laughs> I have questions. Just standing there like American Gothic style, like. Like, have you had a pitchfork and you're just standing there? <laughs> Ironically so. I had a smile on my face. It wasn't okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, great. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a picture of rural poverty. It was suburban, <laughs> domestic, you know. Ennui. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's get started and talk about some topics. So I wanted to bring up this topic on sexual racism. So on Instagram, A week ago, I posted this infographic about sexual racism, which pretty much says that if you are discriminating against people based on racial characteristics for anything, that's racism. So if you're saying things like, oh, I'm not into Asian guys, or I don't find black people attractive because that's race-based and you are discriminating against them, then that's racism. It was the post that has been most interacted with on anything first on anything that I post on Instagram. Uh the amount of DMs I got from my friends and pretty much people wanted to talk about it, but there was a subsection of people who wanted me to understand that their particular racist behavior was actually just a preference. <laughs> so basically they were asking for me to say it was okay for them to be like, so you know, I'm not a racist. It's just that Asians like all 2.5 billion of them completely off the table for me and I will ignore them sexually. And I was like, well, no, that's racism. And what I found 
and through discussing with people and just from living as being a black person is that I find that when it comes to racist thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, we're really clear in like the hiring space, in like the housing space. We're really sure about what racism looks like there. But when it comes to our internal desires or fantasies, people really reject having that policed. So anyway, I just wanted to get your point of view. Like, what do you think about this concept of sexual racism? People really believe in that they are attracted to what they're attracted to naturally. Well, biologically, and, and actually, I got well, a lot of I got a lot of um, race scientists in my DMs who know a lot. Yeah, yes, well, no, that's a good entree to what I was going to say because saying that you're not attracted to a whole race of people, or even that you are attracted to a particular race of people, to me, it's like a it's a really acute manifestation of the whole you know illusion of race, and we know that there's reality when it comes to race in terms of outcomes and whatnot, but. To say that you're not attracted, just like you said in the example, Chris, to, to Asians, the reality is while we could sit here and name a few stereotypical features of Asians, there is enormous diversity of physicality to Asians, and that's both you know, in terms of different parts of Asia and even within the same parts. It, to me, it's, it's, it may be subconsciously, but it is at least subconsciously buying into these these illusions, these these thoughts that certain races have certain features and others don't. It's just nonsense. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's nonsense. I do think that I have to unpack the idea of like what is attractive to you. Because I think that that's at the core of what you're asking, Chris, is like what is that process of attraction? And that's why I think people feel like they can defend it. Right? I'm defending something that's just naturally inherently occurring for me. Like I was raised a certain way and my body just reacts. And you can't tell me that it should be reacting differently. I think there's a presumption sometimes, or there can be, that there's a real distinction between sort of the intellectual space of knowing like everyone reasonably is attractive, regardless of race, gender, all of those things, versus like my body just reacts to what it reacts to. And to some degree, I can't help my attraction. Well, let's unpack that. Because of all the messages that I got, it's people who are saying that, hey, look, I can't help it. I just think white people are the best. I, I, that's just me. Like, I got messages like that, not so stark. And then I would be like, well, let's unpack that. Like, so let me get this straight. And this was a conversation I had with a former friend. We, we broke up our friendship over this issue. But I was, it was a white guy who said, look, Chris, uh, just white people are attractive and I find them the most attractive. And that is in biologically intrinsic to me. Like I would just always find them attractive. And he found a whole bunch of articles that he sent me, which were completely racist. And I was like, so let me get this straight. If your parents were missionaries in China and you were born there and you grew up there um, and you spent your entire adolescence and adulthood there, you would just be a virgin well into your 40s and 50s because you were surrounded by Asian people and you you would just biologically find them unattractive. And he was like, yes, that lack of curiosity, like that's that's the thing that gets me. It's like, okay, sure. You're walking down the street, you see someone and you're like, whoa, you know, like you're like a cartoon and your eyes like go out of your head and your tongue rolls out. Sure, that happens. But the question that I have is like, well, why is that happening? Where is this response coming from? It's not native to just you. You've been socialized in a particular way. Do you want to unpack that at all? I think in this moment, 
like this George Floyd moment, whatever you want to call this Black Lives moment that we're having, I think in this moment, like you said, Trisha, people are very comfortable in the intellectual space unpacking that. But when it comes to something like attraction, they want to fall back into, look, and this is just what my body's doing. Um, far be it from me to critique or investigate it or interrogate it. I, I think that's weird. I think there's a, there's a question of authenticity there for people. This notion of like, I just want to like what I like and I don't want to think too much about it because if I think too much about it, I'm bringing something else into the space as opposed to what just seems to naturally happen. What you're describing, Trisha, to me is we could also, on a completely different angle, that's bias. Sure. So I just, I I don't know, what Chris is saying really resonates with me. Yes, I can hear someone saying, Look, I happen to find, you know, people of this race attractive or people of this race unattractive. I get that that might be how they experience those people, but as as again, as Chris said, that's a bias and it's a and our biases uh, emerge and evolve based on socialization. I mean, uh, frankly, even the concept that what you're attracted to has something to do with your body to me is a very suspect concept. I mean, I'm not saying that you're consciously deciding I'm only attracted to this group versus that group, but to say like somehow like, look, my penis will only get hard when I look at women of this race and not that, like that's just, it's just absurd. I I, I don't know. It still seems like <laughs> like nonsense to me. I, I think I'm somewhat agreeing with both of you to sit when I say there's this complex process that goes on in a lot of people that results in these biases and for people to just simply accept them, I like what I like, that's extremely unfortunate, at, the, at least for them and for our society. I don't know. I, don't, I, I think I don't really, I don't think I feel the same way you all do. I think I, I can understand the power of I like what I like. Um, because I think we, we extrapolate that for lots of things that are not as, um, that is not as controversial. I respond to this movie because I like it. Or I no, don't, like don't do that. That's not the no, same thing. No, no, no. I'm you not going to do that. But I think I, that's you making that claim that it's not the same thing. No, I think you're making a claim about what is at the core of that. And I think similarly, people are making the claim about what it is that they enjoy. They don't often unpack the the thing that resonates with them. Like, I, I love this movie. I love this book. I love these ideas. I love this space. It's just somehow or another, it resonates with me. Um, I know I, it's like when people say they're attracted to bad things. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, what is that room? What is that space for them? Like, what is that space that we're going to give someone to say, I like a bad thing? I think similarly, people want to do the same thing with attraction. It's like, you can't put, don't put rules on what, what makes what I'm attracted to. Don't put that on me because I don't want it to be a space that's confined by kind of like a sort of rationalization of what makes sense. Let's look at that for a second though, because you brought up the fact that you brought up the thing about like, oh, I just like this kind of movie. If racism is making decisions and discriminations based on race, and the second part of that is, and those decisions and discriminations carry some sort of social weight or work into a narrative of like oppressive frameworks. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess the nearest analog, like I said, don't do that because it's not the same thing as like, oh, I prefer vanilla over chocolate. Like, let's stick or there for a I second. I like bad boys. I like bad boys. That's well, what it hold is. on a second. Let's just, I'm going to stick with a single metaphor. So let's say like, you don't like Christmas movies. Mm-hmm. I don't like Christmas movies. You know, that's a preference. 
Mm-hmm. If you live in a society where every time Christmas or Santa is, comes up, they talk about murder and how it's terrible and Christmas is horrible for you and like, oh, people who like Christmas are a certain kind of thing. The fact that you don't like Christmas movies isn't as simple as, I just don't like Christmas movies. There's something there. And the fact that people could be like, I don't like black people sexually, when also that's the way that we order people when we want to decide about access in society. That's a coincidence, isn't it? Oh, I just don't like Asians, which is a gigantic group of people. But it's just interesting that that is, we're very concerned about race in our society when it comes to like access and privilege. And that seems to back end into people's, I guess, intrinsic attractions. That's, that's a wild coincidence, wouldn't you say? It can't just be from inside of you. I think we need to sort of unpack some of the things that you're doing. First and foremost, I think that those people are just very forthright about what they like. I think a lot of people are not saying what they like because they are afraid of being boxed in by what people have said. So you've actually had someone explore and tell you what their preferences are. But I can look at people who I see and I can look at who they date and I can make an assumption about what they potentially like. Why is that? You know, why, um, why is it if I look at all the guys you've dated, and I don't mean you, but I mean in general, they're mostly white. Are you telling me you have a preference for white? What's the accidental thing going on there? Like, I just think we have to unpack some of that stuff. Like, I agree. Can I, can I jump in, though? I, so, yes, I agree with you that whether a person is forthright and conscious of their preference or not, those preferences exist. I think what I would point out, what I think is the problematic, is that if your preferences break down by race, then you are seeing human beings within race as a primary, like, a primary categorization when it comes to attractiveness. To go to your example about preferences of movies, yeah, I agree. People have preferences like that too. I don't think it's as problematic because movies, whether you like movies or not, there's not necessarily a big impact socially, culturally, economically. But if you're perceiving human beings first and foremost within racial categories when it comes to whether you're attracted or not, to me that's and I agree it's very widespread, but it's really problematic and unfortunate because, again, like, why aren't you, why isn't the first thing about, well, I'm not attracted to people who are really loud or, like, categories that have nothing to do about race. The fact that you can write off a whole race, even though there's so much physical and other types of diversity within that race, it to me, the problem is not just in the dating realm, it's like, how you are perceiving people, what you are bringing to your perception when you see people. You know, I do this in jest. I used to when people are like, yeah, I just don't find Asians attractive. I always go, oh my God, me too. I would never hire a Korean. And they're like, whoa. And I was like, <laughs> yes. And they're like, well, that's not the same thing. And I was like, can you walk me through how it's not? And then usually it's a shade of the argument like, well, I just don't find any of those billions of people attractive. And I want to be clear about something because people kept saying like, whoa, we're not to date a black woman. No one's mandating that you fuck anybody. That's not what this is about. Like Jason said, if you're making decisions based on that, well, that's clearly racism. That's clearly the definition of it. Just like if I made decisions about who I want to live next door to me or who I want to hire. And maybe if I do look around, Trisha, to your point, and everyone I work with is white, 
well, yeah, that should be unpacked. We should really think about how did this come to be? Like, am I making subconscious choices based on what I think about white people? But that entire conversation, how does that not apply to the intimate space? So if I'm only having sex with white people, then maybe, yeah, that's a conversation I have with myself. And you know what? If I come out the other side of it and I'm still having sex with white people, that doesn't mean I didn't arrive ever, anywhere. My thing is that people don't even ask themselves the question. So I agree with you there. Like there's no unpacking of that. There's just like this fallback usually on race science that, listen, I am born this way. I fail to have a little bit of angst about it because I don't think it's about sort of like a sort of universalism, like, which is, of course, there's some Asian person out there who I'd be attracted to. Of course, there's some black person out there I'm attracted to. I'm talking about the reality of how people live their lives. And I think you're going to find more people dating race-based because everything is race-based i think you're going to find most people doing all kinds of things yeah sure but i no one's disputing that no one's disputing that but the thing is is like you take it as a matter of course i know but let's not pretend like i think you can have this kind of like theoretical idea that you're actually open to lots of things but if i look at the practical ways of how it plays out you're not dating all these people no you're not dating all the practical things i mean Let's start, but let's move everything you just said, but instead of using dating, say hiring. Does everything yes. still, does that of still course, true? Of course, of course it is. Because guess what? You're hiring your intimate friends. You're hiring people you feel comfortable with. You're hiring people you know. That's exactly the big problem with why we have problems with hiring. Yes, people theoretically can, people can actually like see the problems with that because they understand that there's, an, there's a notion that, that your race shouldn't get in the way of you doing a proper job. However, when someone is breaking down why attraction happens, it's not A to B to C to D for them. That's not how they believe attraction works. They don't think that attraction is is working on this kind of schema that can be mapped out. It's like you asking them, why did you fall in love with a person? That's how people are equating that. It's like, don't tell me what love means. I don't know. It's a magical formula. Similarly, I don't know why I fall in love with this person or that person. So yes, I think you, you, it makes sense to sort of, uh, you know, align it with the hiring and people will push back. Cause of course they'll be like, listen, it doesn't really matter what you look like. If, if, if it calls for you to lift boxes, anyone can lift a box. Can I just say, I don't disagree with anything you just said, Trisha. I guess what I would say is we're in this period of time. Let's just say we're talking, you know, since, roughly the 16th century, when race, particularly along lines like black and white, has had just a profound impact on a million things. And I think someone who says, I'm just not attracted to black people, I'm just not attracted to white people, that dynamic that has been built because of all of the things we know about around slavery and the construction of race, that is a product of that. And so I think, you know, someday I would hope that we reach another level of kind of human experience where race, as it's been constructed over the past, you know, 500 years, is no longer the driver that it is. And I would say as long as we allow for these spaces to get to what Chris was saying, where we are complicit with race being a significant driver of the choices we make then we're still stuck in this period of time when race is having all these disparate outcomes and et cetera. My understanding, and I, I don't think we can ever know for sure what happened in history, but in certain places in certain times, the concept of I'm not attracted to someone because of 
their race. I mean, race wasn't even the races we think of now weren't even understood as distinct races, you know, in, in previous times in other places. So this is a social construct that if we don't get out of, like, we're just going to continue to have all of the problems we have. And I'm not saying it's all driven by who you're attracted to, but this is yet another manifestation of this problem we have in this historical moment or this historical era. And we have to be willing to question it or else, you know, in all of these areas, hiring who you're friends with, who you're attracted to, these are just going to continue to drive disparate outcomes along lines of race. Well, I mean, okay. I agree. I agree with that. I, th- I think, like I said, I'm not mandating that anyone marry or go out or do anything with anybody. But you, you, like I always say, you're not responsible for your first thought, but you're responsible for your second thought, your third thought, and your action. So if you walk into a place and it's all, you're a white guy and there's all black girls, and you're like, oh, there's no one attractive here. You just have to break down where did that come from? Like, it's just unusual that you'd walk into a room full with people who look completely different from each other and you just with the same brush. Like, there's spiderweb tendrils of like the oppressive society all over that. The fingerprints are all over that. And just like if I get an applicant where it's a black name, let's say, and I'm like, oh, this person won't be good for the job. This moment demands, first of all, but also I just think being a good human person demands that you question your first thought and just find out where it came from. If you get around to like, oh, I'm a white guy and I just don't find black women attractive, and you've really examined that and come out the other side, well, then good. Then you've done the work. That's all I'm asking. It's the thing I was like, well, it's just a preference. It has nothing to do with anything. And it's completely disconnected from the rest of my life or behavior. That's the thing that I think gets me is that, you know what, if you want to walk around and be like, listen, you know, I know some at work, but I would never be friends with a Jew. <laughs> if you think that isn't bleeding over into wherever you are in the rest of your life, I just think that's really naive. I guess I'm not connecting to that in the same way. I think about what attraction is, and it's about lived experiences, and um, and and what um, and what, uh, what and how you feel like your values might be aligned. And so maybe you're sort of attacking the kind of overt racism of saying, I don't like this entire group. Yes, because you know what? Let's take it away from, (laughs) people always have a problem when I do this, right? But let's just not even say romantic attraction. Let's just say, listen, to be friends with someone, there is a low level of attraction by definition that's happening between you and another person. Would it make sense for me to be like, oh, I just, I'm just not friends with East Asians. I'm just not any of them. I'm just... I don't know. It's just, I don't know what draws me to the friends that I do have. I'm just not drawn to them. Now, no one's saying you have to like suddenly make a whole bunch of Chinese friends to prove a point. All I'm saying is like, maybe you should ask yourself the question. Just like we're asking people to ask the question now, like, oh, if you're in a workspace and there's no people of color, you should examine how it got to be that way. That's all. I'm I'm not mandating that anyone do anything. I just want people to think about it. And also, I want to uphold the idea that racism actually has a definition. It seems that there's racism everywhere, but there's no racists. No one wants to um, claim their behavior. And I I find that really frustrating. Well, I mean, listen, you're talking to a dark-skinned Black woman, so I don't really understand any of the things you're talking about. Um, Which things? What do you mean? I mean, we're going to talk about hierarchy, right? We're talking about hierarchy around dating. Mm-hmm. And so this I, this like idea of like what is theoretically good versus what is practically happening, that's not the experience for black women. So 
I just, you know, I don't know. But can I just say, it's it's interesting, Trisha, that you're saying that because, you know, the little bit of studies I've heard on this, it's like black women and Asian men that get the short end of the stick. Like they're the groups that the least number of other groups say they find attractive. I don't know. I'm surprised you're not more fired up about it because I think this is an area where black women get. No, but are you saying, Trisha, that just because this is happening practically, it's like, okay, well, that's just the way it is. No, no, no. Because so where I, are you? Because that's what I'm hearing. I, but no, obviously, I know that's I, not what you're saying. <laughs> so no, no, where no. are you? What I'm saying is I understand it. I understand it. It does, and I don't. Um, I don't repel it, but I understand it because I think what we're talking about is that people recognize that there are hierarchies, and people are involved in romantic relationships for lots of reasons. Sure. Right. I mean, and you're yeah. exactly right. And for you, sure. you're like. You're like, let's dismiss the essentialist argument about race. But also the part of it that's interesting to me is that people are also attracted to folks who will increase their value. Okay. And there's a well, reason. Well, I mean, I mean, but I this, don't know. That's part of the same conversation. I, if, you, if you're dating it, transactionally, there are definitely not, people who are doing but it. I mean, it is transactional. Is it accidental? If it's trans, if it's not transactional, why is it accidental that white people want only white people? Like it's transactional. You know why like, white like, people only want white people? Because it's centuries, it's centuries of programming that white people are better. That's what I. That's the but, point but, that I'm trying to make. But I'm telling you that it's also transactional. That is why yeah, but, Asians and mm. black people, black women are at the bottom. Like that is a part of it. Like just like when you hear a black guy says, "Oh, I want this type of black woman," or "I want this skin color," or "I want all," of, and that's problematic as well. And that should be yeah, unpacked. They are, but I'm just saying that they're all part and parcel of a structure of what has value and what has merit. No, so I, just, I just think it's like, it's all extensions hmm. of the same thing. And so I don't rail against it. I think it's interesting and I think it's important for people to unpack it. But I think at the same time- There these should are be a really, level of acceptance. Not a level of acceptance, but I think it's just like, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a kind of like psychology there that's interesting and important. Um, it's not rage inducing. I just think it's interesting. Like, I think it's useful to understand why people are going down this road because it, what I think is noteworthy about this is that people are actually making, this is where you and I agree is that your attraction is actually not biological in nature is that it's actually a function of lots of things that are about how you can position yourself to acquire the things that you think that has value. And in the hierarchy of values, white people have been placed at the top. And that is why you want a white person, just like why you might want a Mercedes over a, a hoopty. Or what these are things that are happening. So this is so reductionist though, isn't it? It's not reductionist. Well, no, I would go... the interesting thing. You didn't want it to be reductionist, but that's partially what the racialized argument is. It's a kind of reduction. Well, it's but I, I just I, we're arguing I think we're arguing from two different ends here. Uh, can uh, I Jason, just I just I just sure. think what you're saying, Trisha, just I don't think it's completely accurate. I mean, first of all, if what you're saying is true, then class would drive more than race, and I think that's clearly not the case. Asian American men would not would not be at the bottom of the of the hierarchy. Like I just I don't think you can equate attraction. There are certainly people who date and are attracted to for economic value reasons, but lots of people who aren't. I mean, there are lots of people that as they say, marry down or attracted to people. And but you lower. understand the term marry down. I do.
I actually think there are people who, people are more conscious of that kind of attraction than the racial bias. Like what Chris is describing, where people are saying, oh, no, 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 it's just what I'm attracted to. I think people are actually much more conscientious about, well, I really want a guy or a woman with a great career and blah, blah, blah. Like this is the thing. We don't want to talk about the racial aspect because then we would label ourselves racist. God forbid I'm not attracted to a group of people for racial reasons. I can say, well, look, I really want someone with a college degree. That's socially accepted, but we can't even talk about it for race. I still think that the racial question is, is an enormous obstacle in our society. Could you answer me then, what is the, what is the term for someone who says, I really want an Asian woman because she's docile? Yeah, that's racist. That's racist, yes, but it's yeah. a di- but you protect but but the assumption is that it's playing out in a different racialized way, right? It's a it's a it's not a less than. It's actually- it doesn't matter. I think maybe this is where I should have been more clear coming in. It doesn't matter. Listen, and I am I'm, I'm I'm very aware that in this conversation, exactly what happened in my DMs was replicated, and that and actually in, instead of talking about racist behaviors, thoughts, and feelings, we started talking about the nature of attraction, which I think is really interesting. You know, at, at the end of the day, if I make a decision on uh, based on race that supports and reinforces like power structures already existing, then that's racist. That's racist at the end of the day. Um, and whether you enjoy that label or not, it doesn't matter. Like that's that that's the way no, that that is labeled. That's the definition. So like for like if I decide- I don't feel I, like- No, I disagree. I disagree. I In this moment where we're asking people to really think about like their thoughts ba- and behaviors and how that supports the current oppressive regimes, I think it's incredibly important to ask people about these race-based decisions that they're making. How could it not be? I mean, I don't know. I mean, are you asking yourself those questions? What, how, is it Absolutely. Moving, how, is, how is it moving you? Absolutely. I'm asking myself that question because you know what? Like right now I'm looking for a roommate. And so I spend all day looking through pages of people's faces and I I have to work through my own anti-black racism in that moment when I'm looking at people and like, oh, can he pay the rent? And I'm like, you know what, Chris? What was that? And I actually have to sit down and sit with like, that was a really racist thing that just came through my head. And I have got to process it if I want to be a better person and contribute to a better world. Now I can just go through and be like, ah, whatever. Like, that's just the way it is. Because of course I want someone who pays the rent. So that means I should go for someone white. Like, I suppose I can operate like that, but that doesn't really feel forward thinking or next level. It just feels like what we've been doing for hundreds of years. But that feels very much like the hiring questions. Well, the hiring question is similar. Like if we want to say, well, the reason why we hire white people is because white people are better educated and da-da-da-da-da without any thought about why that might be, like I think that's also problematic. And, you know, to come full circle and try and close this up, you know, again, I think, and it's just interesting because in this conversation, if if I had introduced like, let's talk about hiring, right? Or let's talk about who you want in your neighborhood. I feel like it would have went really different. It's just the nature of the personal nature of intimacy and attraction. People want to maintain those quote unquote preferences there. What's been really helpful for me in this conversation is that we're able to replicate like the same environment that I've been having online. And it just, I just think there's a lot more work to do. I think with people to really put that. that, Well, I don't know about that. I think, I mean, I think one of the things that's noteworthy is I think we all have to have our own truth 
telling and on our own come to Jesus moments about mm-hmm. what goes on. And I think if it was a conversation about hiring, I've engaged in hiring and I think about environment and I think about whether this person's going to thrive here or not. And I, I, I think a lot about those things. And I think some environments are toxic for black people. It doesn't mean that I don't want black people in those spaces. I love for them to come in, but we're going to have to have a conversation about the toxic nature of certain environments. Well, even that though, Tricia, even what you just said is so much more thoughtful than most people are willing to be about why they're not attracted or are attracted to whole races of people. And this is actually an excellent segue into our next topic as we talk about environments. Tricia, you want to talk about the two articles that we passed around? Two really fantastic interviews came about on Vulture.com. We'll share the interviews in a link in the podcast. One was an interview with Michaela Cole who came to fame from the TV show on Netflix called Chewing Gum. And now she's on a a new show that is on HBO, which is called I May Destroy You. And the other interview was a a Thandie Newton interview. And Thandie Newton, I think, is on an HBO show as well, Westworld. What I wanted to talk about was I found both of the articles to be surprisingly, I'd say lucid about the racism and the sexism that both of these black women encountered and also seeming to be sort of reflective of the moment. And so my question to you all is about, do you think that the the moment is transforming one, the interview format, the celebrity profile, such that black women feel like it's okay to now sort of unmask and tell the real experiences that they've been having And then also one is a very dark skinned black woman and the other is very light skinned. There were areas of similarity that they had, but also a lot of differences. What's your sense about the piece as just kind of like a form, the interview form? I would definitely, I think, agree with what you were, where you were kind of going with it. And it's interesting, right? Because first of all, if we think about as Me Too, as that really uh, gained momentum, it opened up this space where you had lots of famous actresses in particular who were then talking about being victimized and terrible things happening to them that many of them were not comfortable talking about that before and now i think where we are in a moment where there's a lot of talk about race and i think new recognitions among a lot of folks about the the uh the role race plays and you know how predatory and and oppressive certain structures and and actions are and so i think reading those two interviews it seems like yeah now you see both of them talking very openly about sexual assault that they've suffered really awful things as well as about how race has played out in their careers so i think yes it, that's definitely a play i did find it interesting though that it, tandy newton on the one hand, she, I mean, she, she, what I'm about to say, she basically says this explicitly. She's now talking about a lot, a lot of things she didn't used to talk about. And there's stuff she's still not talking about that she said after she's writing stuff down that will then expose certain things after she dies because she doesn't want to deal with people refuting them while she's still alive. I, I love found, it. I found that just like incredible. So, yes, I think. Her I, little black book, it. as she says. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, God, I can't wait to see that. Like, On one goodness. hand, it feels so immature. But on the other hand, it feels like such a fucking masterstroke. I don't know how I feel about that. I love it, though. Is it immature or is it safety? I, no, I think it's self-care, it's a, right? I think like, it's I a bunch of things. I don't want to go through trauma again and have people come out and say, no, that didn't happen. That didn't like, happen. I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It seemed like a very kind of self-aware approach. What about you, Chris? 
it just seems like such a boss bitch move. Like, <laughs> just drop the mic. It's like you just walk in and be like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. I'm dead. Goodbye. <laughs> you can't do anything. You can't do anything to me. What, I'm dead. What's interesting, though, about it was there's a point in the interview for Thandi Newton where she says, it's so sad for you that you fucked over a brown girl that ended up winning an Emmy and has an audience. I love that part. Which, it, it, yes, I think what she was saying was that like you don't know that the the young girl that you the young brown girl you fuck over early in your career is going to be Emmy winner Tandy Newton years later and having this interview. And I was like, damn, she, she names names. Uh, what I loved about these articles, first of all, Michaela Cole, Tandy Newton, it's amazing because like it's such a contrast right you have um both black women tandy newton is her dad is white so she's half black half white she's very light-skinned she's in her 50s michaela cole is very dark-skinned she's got very uh like phenotypical african features right i think her parents are from ghana yeah right right you know one's like sort of had this long career they're the ones just at the beginning of hers what struck me was the commonalities of their experience. Like Tandy Newton's been at this for 25, 30 years. And exactly what she went through when she was young is the same thing Michaela Cole's going through. But also struck me is that the things that Tandy Newton is still going through 25, 30 years into her career, like the fact that that has not shifted, that just really spoke to me. I want to say, I thought the Tandy Newton interview was really, really brave. She talked about sexual assault. She talked about naming names. She talked about her experience on the set of Crash, a terrible movie that won an Oscar for some stupid ass reason. I, I thought it was extremely brave for what she's doing. But like to get back to the original question, at this, there's an intersectional moment of Black Lives Matter and Me Too. And I think these articles really speak to that. Here are black women, like literally speaking their truth, uh, powerful women, powerful, smart, talented women speaking their truth, just like unafraid and unabashed. And I love to see it. The fact that Michaela Cole was not able to sit at the executive producer table of a show that she created and wrote and directed some of it. Could you imagine Tom Cruise getting the same treatment? Yeah, could you imagine, not even Tom Cruise, can you imagine fucking Ryan Reynolds getting that treatment? Like, he just wouldn't. What I'm curious about in this moment is, like, truth-telling. Like, why is truth-telling permitted now? If I, I wouldn't have read this piece two years ago. What I think is so interesting is that there is now an acceptable level of truth that we now expect people to be able to feel comfortable revealing. Or is, Without there, a, or is there a level of truth that we're demanding as an audience? I don't know if it's demanding as an audience because I mean I wouldn't necessarily I wouldn't say Beyonce would give this interview today. Well, Beyonce break she's like Trump she breaks all the rules. Like I don't. But I mean yeah, yeah so yeah. Are, <laughs> so I don't know like I mean I don't know if like I can't tell chicken or egg y'all. Like mm. are we comfortable now saying this is a real thing that happens and so now if feel okay saying it? As women, like, please feel okay saying that you have been degraded or you've been abused. Not to say that we want everyone to say it if it hasn't happened. But now we're, it's almost like we've said, listen, now the floor is open. Be as honest as you want to be about this thing that we pretended didn't happen years ago. I'll go a step further. And when I say this, I don't mean at all to take away from their bravery yeah. and perseverance because it's amazing. But I think following Me Too and particularly the Harvey Weinstein and and other awful predators like that, it let, you're starting to read an interview with with you know someone either one of the, these particular artists slash actresses, 
would we even find it believable if they were like, well, none of that happened to me? I mean, like, I feel like the curtain's been pulled away in a way that, like, we know that these awful things happen for people to succeed. They have to endure these terrible things at the hands, usually, of, of men. It, it would almost, like, wait, you're a woman of color. You actually have done a lot in Hollywood. How, how would it not be the case that you haven't gone through some horrible stuff, unfortunately? The other thing I'm curious about, so the interviewer is the same author, and it is an Asian male. And I'm curious because we just spent some time talking about sort of racialized interaction. Do you think or do you believe that interview goes the same way with a different interculenta? Is that the word? <laughs> <laughs> or did she pulls the, out an SAT word? I man. know. Or does the Asian does the Asian male bring something into the mix? I'm hesitant to answer this. Um, <laughs> I, I, no, I am. I don't know. I mean, you know, I think back to the conversation we had a couple episodes ago about Little Fires Everywhere, right, where that was written by an Asian-American woman, which we said did seem to give her a certain perspective, limiting in some ways, enlightening in others. So I think maybe that's true. I'm always hesitant, though, because sample of, I mean, you're right, these are two different interviews slash articles by the same author, but I'm hesitant. I don't want. To, I don't know how much to draw from this one interviewer. He's clearly very good at it. But it, it, there. I think there could be something there. I do think the interview might sound different. For instance, if a white male was asking the questions. First of all, this interviewer. And while I'm talking, can someone please get his name? This interviewer <laughs> is clearly extremely skilled because Tandy Newton in her interview she says, "Oh my God, I've never cried in an interview or right. in an interview before." So clearly, he has some level of skill. I want to fully give that to him. Also, like Jason said, would if this was a white person, would the interview have been the same? I'm going to say no, but maybe not for the reasons you think I'm saying no. I have a sense that this moment has people of color and black people speaking their truth in a way that I've never experienced in my life, like publicly, like out loud, like really shouting it from the rooftops. And that's the sense that I got from these articles. So the thing is, I think if a white person had written it, they may not have been sensitive to the tones that Michaela Cole and Tandy Newton were talking about. I can picture the way like this interview format went where you could have concentrated on different parts of this story. So what was Tom, what was it like to work with Tom Cruise? You know what I mean? I feel like, I feel like in a person of color, was able to bring that attention to some of the things that these women were talking about. But I really do feel like this interview in this moment, I think these women were probably empowered in a way, both as black people and as women, that they may not have felt empowered two years ago. So it's Alex Young, which Alex is J-U-N-G. Now it's interesting actually, because I read another interview with Alex Young and he interviewed Hong Chao, who is this Asian lady in Homecoming, um, the show on um, I oh, think, right. uh, Showtime. But I think she was also in that. Um, she was also in the movie, that you, in the show that you love on HBO, Chris, Watchmen. I remember thinking to myself that he is actually really quite skilled in engaging his um, interviewees in a way that they unpack their experiences in a way that I haven't really seen. But I think what I think is noteworthy about this, and I'm very comfortable pushing on the idea that maybe it is an interaction between those two, mm -hmm. because why else? And this is one of the things I really struggle with and people I struggle with when we talk about why representation matters. 
Because part of it is like, there's this notion that there's nothing essentially different about black, white, Asian, brown people, right? There's this like, now, yes, there's nothing essentially different in the sense that there's nothing less than happening across groups of people. However, because of our lived experiences, we do bring things into the space. Sure. And I think that's one of the things that people haven't really unpacked about representation or why it's important to have lots of different people contribute to a conversation. And so if I say that I think Alex Young does something in that interview, people want to feel uncomfortable about that. But what I'm saying is that based on his experiences as an Asian male, there are some experiences we can assume. We won't tell him that. But there are some experiences of the United States that he's had or observations that he may have made because of his Asian maleness. I think that's one of those things that I think pe makes people really uncomfortable when you talk about why it's important to diversify a space and why it's important for people to be able to um, occupy a space and, and really tune into the things that they bring. I agree. Because the default yeah. has been whiteness. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if your default is whiteness in this interview. Exactly. Exactly. Because well, you know what? Even if the women had said exactly the same things, the article would look different. That's That was the point that I was trying to make is that that's why I think his status as a person of color informs just in, I mean, of course it does. I mean, this is natural to us, right? But like, this would be a surprise to a lot of people. Well, of course his perspective would be different. As a journalist, you're not simply just reflecting and regurgitating what the subject is telling you. But so I would say that it's a both. I would say definitely his Asianness definitely plays into the way that he writes the story and the reasons he wanted to pursue these subjects in the first place, in the first place. But also, I, I do think that- But the, not in a predictable way. It's not, it's not clear, mm -hmm. but the question is, let's be open to the possibility yeah, without sure. a judgment of it being a flawed orientation. Oh, God, sure. who would say sure. that? So it's interesting uh, hearing you, Chris, talk about the interview with Tandy Newton, because it seems like, you know, you came away with like, wow, like, as you said, like, you know, boss bitch. I left that article really kind of sad. It seemed to me- that every single project that she reflected on, she's done a lot of amazing things, she feels bad about in some way or another. Either she's like, well, I did well at that, but people had a problem with me doing it because I was light-skinned, or I thought that was good at the time, but when I look back, I shouldn't have been playing that role, or I didn't like how we approached that, or of course, you know, awfully not her fault, but like I was sexually assaulted on the set. But it seemed like there wasn't one, I don't think, that she was like, that was great, I feel really proud of it. It was well-received. It was great. Like, not one. However, I, felt, I felt really sad. I was like, oh, my goodness. She's done all this work. She's been this, you know, person that lots of people admire. And, like, she has angst about every single thing. I'm but, not blaming her for it. But no, of course did not. You, did you feel that? It's so – I love that you brought that up because what a different lens you and I have. Because of the way, like, society is set up, the way that it's set up, even in your tragedy, you have to find joy. And I'm reflecting on, in the article, she talks about having a conversation with Eve Ensler, where she talks about the sexual abuse that she uh, suffered. And she was expecting like this sympathy, this outpouring. And Eve Ensler just looked at her and said, and you're going through it, and you're making through it, and, and you're a survivor of it, like you're moving forward out of it. That really spoke to me because, yeah, you can look at the way that she lines that up 
and talk about like all the tragedy and like a tragedy of a career. But when she was talking about it, like in this present day moment, the way that she was carrying herself in the interview, which is again, very well written, the things that she was saying, like I really got the sense that she is able to talk about those low points because she's at a place of mastery over them. And the kind of pain that she felt during that moment, it shifted and she can, that's why I say that she's a boss bitch because I feel like she has mastered her past, made it part of her history and is using to inform her choices today. I mean, isn't yeah. that what you're supposed to do when you have those experiences? I didn't receive it like that. How'd you receive it? I didn't, first of all, I don't think she's mastered her past. And she says it clearly that she's still damaged and bruised by it. Sure. But I think even in a situation that seems like it would be a great one, toxic systems create toxic interactions. Yeah, that was and very clear. That was you know what I mean? Clear. And so it's like every single space I've worked has been toxic in at various levels, right? You know, and for various reasons. Either it's an interactional issue, it's a full systems issue. And if you recount it, think about every work environment you've been in. If you all sat back and gone, whoo, loved every minute of it, woohoo. I mean, it just wasn't that way, you know? There were just so many problematic issues in all of them. And I think what's noteworthy about it is she's able to sort of recalibrate, she's able to recount them and identify where the fault lines were. Yeah. I will say the one that was probably the most enjoyable for her was the Bertolucci film. And the only part of it that was toxic was sort of how it was received in terms of the African stories, right? right. Um, which was after the fact and kind of a misperception issue. Um, so that was at least pleasurable to in the doing, <laughs> not the packaging afterwards. I think that's what, what's been noteworthy about both of the interviews is that when you build toxic systems and you expect people to survive, not survive, but to thrive in them, you have to be prepared for these kinds of tales. And part of the myth-making is to believe that what you're seeing on TV is a reflection of something really great that is, that is like, that's like excised from the reality of the person doing it. So now I've been pleading for chewing gum to come back because I love it, right? I've been dying to see the third season. And now that I know what her interaction was like, Michaela Cole, I don't want it back because I don't want her to suffer right. and bring me that season. <laughs> Well, yeah, no, I think that's all well said. I think what I'm I'm interested to know, I mean, it'll, it'll be interesting in 20 or 30 years, like the Michaela Cole article, and, and I don't mean to compare them, they're very different and everything and different generations, but like you heard really awful things she's been through, but it, it seemed to have a narrative arc where like she's rising, right? Like she has built more power. She, you know, yeah, she didn't get executive producer, producer, but the first time she didn't get anything, now she's co-producer. Like you see this, like she's winning. I think about someone like Lupita, who I think also, when you listen to her, like she's been through some tough stuff, but like just she get, you know, Black Panther, like she's just doing stuff that's like groundbreaking. And and I just wonder whether in 30 years they're gonna look back and like have something, you know, unfortunate to say about everything they've done, or whether they'll be able to look back and say, you know what, this and this, that was awesome. It was awesome from beginning to end. I loved it. It was well received. It was a success. It was just, I don't know. It was really sad for me that Tandy, there was like not one thing like that. But you yeah, know, the thing is that Tandy Newton was honest. I think if you polled a lot of Hollywood actresses, 
which has been happening the past couple of years with me too. I think if you pull a lot of Hollywood actresses about their times on set, like all these stories would emerge, yeah. which is why I like the fact that Tandy Newton is talking about this yeah. because like Trisha said, we want to look at this and be like, oh, that look, that movie looks like it was fun to make, you know, like <laughs> without understanding like the the layers of issues that might be on that set for a person of color, for a woman, for an LGBTQ person, yeah. like, yeah. you know, so I think if if people really, and I hope we see more of this, if people really spoke their truth, then we'd have a very complicated understanding about the art that we're consuming. Do you know what? And I really wish that. And I think that's the thing. That I emerged, hope it. That's what emerged for me from the piece was that I don't know if I need, and this is weird for me to say, because I love a good myth-making, but I don't know if I need the myth-making anymore. Like, I think that, I think it's really important for us to unpack how an art piece comes together. Like, you don't have to sell me on the sanitized version of, like, how it all worked, right? Like, it's like, you can separate what I'm seeing on the screen from how it all put together. Because I think that's one of the reasons why people push back so much when someone un unveils the process a little bit. Because it, it then makes them ask whether they can enjoy the product. Yeah. Right, and I Which feel like put pressure on people to make the process more enjoyable and equitable for everyone. That's, what you, yeah. that's, that's what you sure. want. You don't for want to end sure. up with like a Glee or a Cosby Show where you're like, Ugh. well, you know? yeah. I mean, it's so true. What I thought was what I also thought was really noteworthy, just from the kind of biracial piece, was Sandy's recognition of how she was utilized on set to block other Black people's participation. Mm -hmm. And that I love, I love time, that she recognized that. One of my biggest pet peeves is the failure to recognize that you are blocking somebody sometimes. So like sometimes when you bring this up to biracial people, they can really push back on. And for her to recognize that her lightness is part of the charm and the appeal and and that there's a politicized nature of that in that thing like recognizing that has some sort of merit and value in the marketplace and which the people, i find sometimes they people don't yeah and the the people in power weaponize your yep. blackness against other black people so like what we're referring to is there's a part uh in the article where tandy newton talks about how they were shooting something in oakland california and all of the um extras were white and if you ever been to oakland um <laughs> Well, hold not, on, they were shooting it in Canada. They're shooting in Canada. It was, it was supposed to be taking to be place in Oakland, which was part and, of the problem. And Danny was like, oh, you know, you've really got to get more black people because like Oakland. And they said, well, you know, we have black people. You're here. Like, that's it. Like we got, we have one. Roll them. You know what I mean? Or whatever they say <laughs> on movie sets. <laughs> and her, her recognition of that, Trisha, like you said, her recognition of that, I think, has been something. Uh, this is like a whole thing I can deconstruct, but. I think it's something that I think mixed race people and light skinned actors have trouble accepting because they have to accept the darker parts of how they got to where they were. You know what I mean? Ooh, like really man. recognize their privilege. And that can be tough to recognize your privilege because you might have to give it up. And nobody Everyone, wants to do that. This Black Lives Matter moment, I've been wondering, I've been wondering about the light skinned people. Listen. <laughs> Oh, and we're going to leave that there. Let's move on to recommendations, which is something you've seen, heard, read, or experienced you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. Trisha, what's your deal? It's been done to death, but I'm going to recommend it. 
caveats and excuses. You know that's going to be a good recommendation. Go ahead. <laughs> well, actually, I watched two things that I had already seen. So I'm going to be making a bid for them again. So I watched um, What Happened, Miss Simone, Miss Nina Simone. Watch that again right now in this moment. Woo! Um, that's on Netflix. It's that's also the part documentary of, about it's her, right? It's a documentary. Okay. And it's also part of Netflix's Black Lives Matter category. <laughs> Sorry. <Yeah. Anyway. laughs> it's a little painful to watch like what gets included in that. I know the different things. And so, and then of course, I think it's interesting. I'm basically making this recommendation for Jason so he can get with the program. I think the film version of Hamilton, can I tell you theater when it's filmed for TV watching? Amazing. Not that weird masterpiece thing where they're filming it from a distance and you don't get like the facial expression. I actually did pay for my Disney Plus for the next month. I will be canceling it. Um, so that I <laughs> so that I could see Hamilton. It was wonderful to see the original cast. And it's really it's 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 strange to watch it having seen many different versions of it now and how um You're just bragging now. That's all you're doing. Even, but I'm just talking about showing off. I know, but I've just, seen every people listening to this right now hate yeah. you. Yeah. I know. We can you. you can hate me. But I think it's what's noteworthy about it is to look at it is really the kind of thing where people bring different things to it. Like, I mean, like, I think even just the way the staging has, has shifted over time and how different relationships are emphasized at various performances. Like, I think it's it's just fascinating. Some performances I really key into the relationships between the women. Some it's really between Aaron Burr and Hamilton. Other times it's it fades into the background. It's really strange how that can work out. So... I will highly recommend you watching Hamilton. I know there's lots of controversy about it right now because, you know, in a, in a Black Lives Matter moment, people have questions about why the slavery issue didn't come up more. But I know, well worth watching so we can chat about it. Great. Those are my two recs. I've been dying to recommend Amethyst, a novel, a debut novel by Carrie Emile, who is a very good friend of mine. You can get it on Amazon. It is really good it is about a 17 year old's experience away from home for the first time as a freshman at a fictitious atlanta hbcu oh. and uh, it's it is really good it's one of these moments where it's like this friend of mine she's fantastic i've always known she's fantastic she's super smart but i as i read the book i'm like oh my god like how did you write this this is incredible like what it's really good that's great she she paid for that right that endorsement <laughs> did, did the check clear just send it i'll cut this know. part out i'll cut this not part at out. all not at okay. all okay cool this is gonna be right up trisha's alley okay i have started watching the netflix reboot of unsolved mysteries no, yes. <laughs> Unsolved Mysteries <laughs> was a TV show, I think on Fox in the early 90s, where they used terrible actors yeah. to recreate like the, these weird cases that are closed or cold. And I mean, it was so creepy. Anyway, Netflix has brought it back. I watched the first two episodes. Honey. <laughs> honey. I don't know what it is about mysteries, but like just the fact these are real people and this really happened and there's oh. no way for you to figure out like people just disappear or they get, they're killed. And 
just watched the first episode about Ray Rivera and how he mysteriously was found dead in a hotel and they said he killed himself. It's so strange. The difference between back in the day, Unsolved Mysteries, and today is that the internet exists. All of these digital gumshoes on Reddit trying to solve these mysteries ah, is a show that. in and of itself. So check it out and then go to the Unsolved Mysteries subreddit and just bask in people's wild speculation uh, and the amount of work pulling public records. We will solve these mysteries. <laughs> the, okay. the second season will be solved. Yeah, mysteries. We will solve mysteries 2021. <laughs> we will solve these. The only thing that happens right in 2020, I think, will be the solving of these mysteries. Anyway, check it out. I love that idea, though. Can I tell you? I love the idea that this is what's happened now as a, as a result. Because, I mean, half the time when people are like, I'm going to put black Twitter on that. And it's it's the person it who saw that. It works. It works. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it goes terribly wrong, like with the Boston bomber, where a subreddit yeah. thought they found him and that that guy was not the bomber and he was so freaked out he killed himself. That was bad. <gasps> Don't do that, subreddit, unresolved mysteries. Just Just solve the mysteries and let it be. But it, it's it's really great. It's totally creepy. Don't watch it late at night. <laughs> you won't sleep well. You, you really won't. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, there it is, people. That's our penultimate episode for the season. Ooh. I know. Just one more to go. And then our summer's upon us. Or I'll, I guess summer's already upon us. And I, this is normally the part of the show I'd ask you if you're taking vacations, but I know no one's going anywhere. So, uh, so <laughs> please. So Jason will be returning to his front yard to stand creepily with his kids and his wife and his dog. Here we go. On that note. <laughs> and on that note. Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs> Bye.